Thank you, Seth. Well done. Well, good morning. So glad you're here today. I, um, those of us in house uh, know that uh, it's. I'm in this teaching the series, and uh, our lead pastor's traveling. A lot's going on. It's been great. I just feel like I have been being prayed for, just aware of God's help and presence, and I want to thank you for that. It's meaningful. Open, if you will, your Bible to Job chapter one. We will get there eventually. Job chapter one. If you're a guest today, we're in a four-part series that we're calling Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Last week was the first in the series, and the title of that was Understanding Suffering in the 21st Century. And today the title is The Suffering, The Sovereign and Suffering God. The Sovereign and Suffering God. Over the centuries, Christians have flourished in times of suffering by standing on two foundational truths about God. We serve a lovingly sovereign and a suffering God. This is a uniquely Christian truth, and it's a major unifying theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Yet this truth clangs harshly on the ears of anyone who lives in the most prosperous nation on earth, or many anyway. Americans with itching ears have accumulated for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, as Paul said they would. And the prosperity gospel is one of those ear-tickling heresies that's out there. In its crudest form, it teaches that God wants you to be rich and trouble-free, and if you ask him, he will make you rich and free your life of troubles. Of course, it may require a $1,000 seed gift to his servant to make that happen. You can make your checks out to the Apostle Bird and Prophetess Karen Turner, if you like. <laughs> this heresy tickles the ears quite well. And it has, uh, it has affected many people and drawn them to serve God for ulterior motives. While America has sown this destructive heresy to the wind, impoverished nations of the world have reaped the whirlwind. And many nations around the world in poverty, where there is Christianity, this is run like wildfire. This idea that I can give my way into prosperity somehow. Christopher Ashe, the author of a book, Job, the Wisdom of the Cross, which I highly recommend, uh, relates to the first time he visited Nigeria, he was astonished to see many ramshackle signs along the side of the road, uh, advertising little independent churches whose names seem to proclaim the prosperity gospel. Names like the Winner's Chapel, Divine Call Bible Church, its slogan is excellence and power, that's what we want or the Redeemed Evangelical Mission Power Word. And that is how to speak words to get power and influence. Come to Jesus and become the winner in life. That seems to be their message. Ash says he was told that in Ghana, some of the influence of the prosperity gospel are changing their marriage vows from the traditional for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, to 
for better or best or richer or richest because they cannot admit the possibility there may be for a Christian couple anything worse or poorer. Ash takes it a step further and talks about the therapeutic gospel. He says it this way. I believe we have a slide for you. What happens to the prosperity gospel when I already enjoy prosperity? It metamorphoses into the therapeutic gospel. Therapeutic gospel is the gospel of self-fulfillment. It makes me already healthy and wealthy feel good. If prosperity and the therapeutic gospels are poison pills, the book of Job is the antidote. In a real sense, the suffering of Job is the negative image to the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. Ash says in that book, the very first temptation in the Garden of Eden was to believe that God is not fair. Adam and Eve stumbled over what they did not receive. Job stumbled over what he did receive. We see in high definition the lush, vibrant beauty of the fruitful garden where one blessing was withheld. Adam and Eve cried out lustfully, why can't we have that blessing? And God said, in effect, trust me anyway. In the grainy black and white despair of the ravages of Satan, Job painfully cries out, why have I received this suffering? And God says, in effect, Trust me anyway. As much as Adam and Eve and Job, we long for answers to these questions as well. And these aren't questions from the armchair. These aren't just interesting theological consideration, not just kind of more evangelical banter. Let's have a conversation about these theoretics. No, these are questions from the wheelchair. Questions from brokenness. Questions from pain, questions from loss. Young people, <laughs> sorry to say this, but if you live long enough, you will suffer. Here be dragons is inked on the map of all of our lives. We won't be satisfied by theodicies and philosophies. We need to hear from God. We need to hear from God in times of suffering. To further understand our sovereign God in the light of the reality of suffering, we're going to look into Job briefly, first two chapters. Hopefully pull out a few truths about God, about Satan, about Job, and about ourselves. Hopefully it will spur you to further study Job on your own. And then in our second part, we'll look at the book of Hebrews in chapter 2 in order to contemplate our suffering God. Ultimately, God's purpose for suffering is to cause us to worship His sovereignty and cling to His suffering sacrifice. Our God reveals Himself through and joins us in our suffering. So two main points today. Number one, the sovereign God Number two, the suffering God. Number one, sovereign God. Number two, suffering God. 
Let's pray and we'll jump into it. Father God, we, these, these extremes of your reality, these foundations for our souls, Lord, they are, they are difficult to understand. Lord, they elude us at, at some point, but Lord, they are nonetheless strength for our souls. They are, they are fodder for our faith. Lord, they are building us into you. And so God, today, by your spirit, Lord, help us. You know our weaknesses, Lord. You know my weakness. By your spirit, come and teach us today, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, a little context for the book of Job. The author of Job gives no clue by whom or when the book was written. Some theologians, commentators think that it may be the oldest book in the Bible. The book has an introduction, an epilogue written in prose, and then 39 chapters of poetry in between. Job, the book of Job, is a literary masterpiece. I've read it multiple times over the last year. It is rich, rich, and it grapples with the purposes of God for his people when they suffer. Now, there are different opinions about whether the book of Job represents actual occurrences or whether it is a sort of long parable. Whichever the case, it is biblical truth that teaches us about God and ourselves. In the commentaries I've read, I think it's best to think about Job as a poetic writing down of a true historical oral history. This is oral history that someone eventually wrote down based on true events. That's what I think. So hopefully you're in Job chapter one. We'll start reading there. We're gonna read a chunk through chapter two, verse 10. This is God's inerrant, sufficient, and eternal word. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, who, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Maybe that my children have sinned, cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also was among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and says, Dost thou fear God for no reason? 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all he has is in your hand. Only do not, only against him, do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger, Job, and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them, took them, and struck them down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep, and the servants have consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I have come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, though you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan asked the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? 
In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word abides forever. With a thousand strokes of a hammer, the suffering in the book of Job drives home this question, what is the real reason you are serving God? There are various kinds of suffering in the Bible and in the world we could talk about. Joseph, Job experienced a specific kind of suffering. Eric Cortland, in his book, Suffering Wisely and Well, The Grief of Job and the Grace of God, helps us get a handle on what kind of suffering Job faced. There are more kinds of suffering, but Ortland describes three kinds of suffering. The first two kinds of suffering, one in consequence of sin, you can suffer in consequence of your own sin. Secondly, you might suffer as a catalyst for your growth. Those are two areas, two ways that he helps with. And he has a quote that's, that I think is helpful. He says, suffering for sin is punitive. Its goal is healing. But the pain involved counts as not unloving discipline from our Heavenly Father. But as often as the Bible shows us sin leading to suffering, there are many other examples of suffering deepening us as Christians. Suffering that is not punitive, but a catalyst for growth. So these are two kinds of suffering we'll actually study more next week. We look at suffering as God's gymnasium. But there's a third reason that Ortland gives. Number three is we suffer to prove the reality of our relationship with God. There are times when suffering comes to prove the reality of our relationship with God. Here's how he describes that. God sometimes allows Job-like ordeals, not because he's angry with us or trying to teach us a lesson, but in order to prove the reality of our relationship with him. God sometimes puts us in a position where we lose every earthly reason to be in relationship with Him. It's because there is no other way to deliver us into the kind of relationship with Himself where He is loved and honored simply for His own sake. This is the only kind of relationship with God that honors God as God and which will make us happy in eternity. You may remember 1 Kings chapter 19 when Elijah, after he has fled from Jezebel in fear and defeat and is hiding in a cave and God calls him out, first thing God says to him is, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Suffering asks us, God asks us through suffering, what are you doing here? Why are you serving me? So, let's look at scripture together. Let me pull 
glean a few truths from this passage we read in Job. Truth about God, truth about Satan, truth about Job, truth about ourselves. First truth about God we see is He's sovereign. God is sovereign. He is our sovereign God. We see God reigning over all, but not directly responsible for evil. God doesn't strike Job, Satan does. So we see God controlling all things, but there is this agent of evil in the world called Satan. James chapter 1, verses 12 and 15, we may have looked at this last week, let's look at it again. Helps us give a frame of reference for our suffering. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God does not tempt anyone to evil. It is the evil in our own hearts, or Satan at work in the world, that creates and causes evil, moral evil in the world. However, we can see and learn from Scripture that while evil happens by one removed, God is directly responsible for the good things that happen to us, for the blessings in our lives. Just read on in James as he helps us have this context of how to relate to our Father, James 1, 16 through 18. So he says, listen, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he has brought, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Do you know blessing in your life? Have you known good things? You received perfect gifts? Whatever means you got them, naturally, they came from the Father directly to you. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father to you. God loves you. It's a good God. The other thing we see about God in this passage is that God will limit the activity of Satan in your life. As you see in these instances, God drew a circle. He said, this far I know Father. As hard as it is to know that God has allowed somehow in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, suffering in the world. It's even better to know that he is personally involved with your life, limiting that. And we'll see in a minute how he does that. One of the means he does that. What do we learn about Satan? Well, we see Satan is at work. This restless evil, opportunistic evil, enemy of your soul. He is the personal agent of evil in the world. When you suffer, Satan is betting against you. He's betting you're going to turn your back on God. He's betting you to complain and blame and charge God. Jesus is betting for you, and he put himself down to cover the cost of the bet. Listen. 
We must be aware that Satan is actively warring against us. And we must do battle against his attacks. Listen to this. God's sovereignty over Satan is often exercised through our discerning acts of faith. God acts in us through us sovereignly, and it is through our acts of faith that he sovereignly limits Satan in our lives. 2 Corinthians 2 tells us to not be outwitted by Satan, so we have to be discerning, understand God's word, know how to act when we see him acting. Ephesians 6 tells us to stand against his schemes and to use our faith to extinguish his fiery darts. When suffering creates doubt and unbelief in you, those are the attacks, those are the fiery darts of Satan, you must put them out. Our warfare is primarily through the use of Scripture to discern Satan's activity, to reject his accusations against God and against us as well, and to remember God's goodness through Christ. That's the warfare we're involved in. So remember, Paul says in Ephesians, season 6, he says, having done all to stand, stand therefore, right? Well, don't just stand there, do something. <laughs> fight. Take up God's word and fight. Sing praises. Go to church. Get godly counsel. Get surrounded by people who can help you. Fight back. Amen? Yes. Job's character. What does this passage tell us about Job's character? In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. The suffering wasn't because Job was being disciplined for his sin. It was because God was maturing him. The suffering was to bring God's glory by showing Satan that Job loved God for who God is and not for what God could do for him. It's a costly but a great glory for God and for Job. Job had worshipped and glorified God in his prosperity. Now Job turns to worship in his suffering and great grief. The ultimate goal of suffering in life of the believer is worship. The ultimate response of God to the suffering believer is comfort. Job 120, read it earlier. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. So, what do we learn about ourselves in this passage, about our character? Like Job, we are called to give God glory in times of prosperity and to worship him in times of trouble and be example to those on earth and to those in the heavens that our God is good. Excuse me a second. It's really amazing. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 3, 7 through 13. It's really astounding. Paul, speaking to the writer of Ephesians, says this, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, this mystery 
hidden for ages in God who created all things. Listen to this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you or over your own suffering. Do not lose heart, which is your glory. Do not lose heart. Listen. As much as you may feel alone in your suffering, you're not alone. <laughs> the cosmos is looking on. Somehow we have a role on the cosmic stage that this play is unfolding on. We are pro- when we are prospering, suffering, worshiping as the church, as the body of Christ, in a way we serve as a testimony to a watching world that's saying, how is that possible? And even somehow as well to a watching angelic hierarchy that does not get it, does not understand it. We are somehow, as we, not just us as individuals, but when we live together, worship together, care for each other, forgive each other, help each other, equip each other, send each other, that is something that is a marvel to the universe. Wow. The rest of the book of Job is largely magnificent poetry. It explores the depths of suffering, reactions to suffering, and God's sovereign majesty. I hope this little taste of Job inspires you to, to study the book. It is, it is well worth it. In the end, Job is restored, but he never learns why he was suffering. It's often true for us as well. We don't know why we go through the suffering we go through. Most importantly, Job is a type and a shadow of Jesus Christ. Job did not suffer because of his own sin. Job loved God all through his suffering. Jesus did not suffer because of his own sin, yet God was pleased to lead Jesus to suffering and death because of his love for us. We often suffer due to the sins of others through no fault of our own. We have an example in Job and a brother in Christ to help us through that very difficult kind of suffering. If you are suffering unjustly, you are not alone. God sees. Job cried out later in the book, a verse from further on, one of the the poetic narratives, he says, behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. Job is in this place where he cannot see God. God doesn't seem to be apparent or close to him or acting in any way. He is gone. Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When in our suffering we feel far from God and without hope, Job stands as an encouragement to to persevere. Jesus stands as the guarantor of that perseverance. 
In the midst of Job's anguish and suffering, he cried out, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Job prefigured the suffering Savior and placed his trust in God. By faith, he looked forward to the coming Redeemer, Christ Jesus our Lord, who is not only our sovereign God, but also our suffering God. Main point number two, the suffering God. The suffering God. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll get there eventually. Our first point under this is, is to see the compassionate heart of God through the Old Testament. Although the loving, suffering heart of God is most clearly seen in the person of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament bears witness to a God who was always grieved over sin and compassionately tender towards those who are His own. One translation of Genesis 6, 5 and 6 says it this way, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. The Lord was grieved that He had made man on the earth, and His heart was filled with pain. God is not expressing that he somehow made a mistake. He's showing his heart of compassion. Theologian and commentator Derek Kidner writes about this passage and he says, this word grieved, that we saw in that passage, is akin to the sorrow and pain inflicted on human beings for their sin in Genesis 3, 16 and 17. Already, God suffers on man's account. The compassionate, grieving hearts of the prophets in the Old Testament reflect the heart of God. And God at times, God expresses His heart directly through them. To the prophet Jeremiah, God addresses Israel in the name of Ephraim, saying in Jeremiah 31.20, He says this, He says, Therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him. Ephraim was in sin and rebellion. In Hosea 11, God cries out, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim again. Israel sinned. They turned from God. They were worthy of judgment. They received judgment. But God's heart was compassionate and burned for them. Like God, we feel emotions unlike, but God, unlike us, I should say, God, God unlike us, is never moved by his emotions contrary to his character. It's always in keeping. We have to take biblical truths that we serve an emotional God and combine it with the rest of what Scripture teaches us about God. He is self-sufficient and self-sustaining. He does not need or depend on any of His creation. God is immutable. He never changes. God is sovereign, omnipotent, eternal, holy, merciful, and compassionate. Nonetheless, in His love, God suffers. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. I thought he says it, said it well. He said it this way. 
We all know how hard involvement leads to suffering. The more you love someone, the more that person's grief and pain becomes yours. And so even in the first chapters of Genesis, we see God is suffering because of our suffering, because of the misery of the world. Here we have no abstract deity, no divine principle, no rational structure behind the universe. This is not merely the spark of divine life in every living being. This is a transcendent but personal God who loves us so much that his heart is filled with pain over us. That would be remarkable enough, but then there is Jesus. Then there is Jesus. Secondly, Jesus Christ is our suffering Savior. Jesus was and is fully God and fully man, but prior to coming to the earth, Jesus had never physically suffered. God had never physically suffered. It's no exaggeration to say that Jesus came to earth to suffer. Isaiah 53 describes Jesus as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus experienced the physical suffering of weariness and thirst. John 4, 6, he knew distress and grief and was touched in his heart, troubled in his heart. Mark 3, 5, John 11, 3, 12, 27. In his suffering, he offered up prayers with loud cries and tears and in agony. Hebrews 5, 7, Luke 22, 44. Jesus was rejected by those in his hometown and even his own family. John 7, 3 through 5, Matthew 13, 57, Mark 3, 21. However, Jesus experienced the greatest suffering of any man who's ever lived. At the cross. God the Son took the sins of all mankind on himself on the cross. And God the Father turned his face away. In his book, Why Does It Have to Hurt? The Meaning of Christian Suffering, Dan McCartney says it this way. God knows what it's like to suffer, not just because he sees it far in far greater clarity than we, but because he has personally suffered in the most severe way possible. The agony of loss by death, the separation from a beloved, and the disruption of his own family, the Trinity, by the immensity of his own wrath against sin. Jesus least unleashed his own wrath against sin by taking sin on himself. There is great comfort for sufferers. Are you tired of your sin? Are you suffering by still living your life for yourself? Are you carrying around the weight of your own eternity? That's a hard thing. Jesus died for your sins. 
calling you today. You can know him. If you don't now, you can know him. Are you in a prolonged trial? You are not alone in your suffering. You have a personal, loving, suffering God who is very close. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus, our fellow sufferer, calls us to himself when we suffer. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon yourself and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Christianity never claims to fully explain God's reason for evil and suffering. But it does have the final answer for it. At the end of history, the final answer will appear and all God's people will find it fully satisfying and eternally sufficient. The author, Fyodor Dostoevsky, expressed this as well as anyone, perhaps, when he put these words in the mouth of one of his characters in his, one of his novels. He said, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. Like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. That in the world's finale, the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that's happened. Hopefully your Bibles are open to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll read this and take one last look at our suffering God. Hebrews 2 will begin in verse 5. God's word says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why He's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. And in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Lord, we are, we are needy. Lord, some of us here suffer. All of us will suffer. We'll be tempted when that happens. Thank you for suffering in our place. Thank you for helping us when we're being tempted. Lord, Lord, stir our faith. Lord, put fresh oxygen in our lungs. Lord, where we have grown weary, Lord. We have lost our breath, Father, the, the suffering, the difficulty, the challenge, the disappointments. Lord, we've grown unbelieving. Blow on us freshly. Make these words come alive. May we see you in the midst of suffering, see the midst of temptation, and worship you, Lord. And come in power and save us, Lord. Rescue us. Deliver us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?